Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalist John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hey everyone, I'm John Schaust. And I'm Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode 10, Migration Magic. Think about if you'd been living hundreds of years ago and the birds every fall disappeared and then magically showed back up in the spring. You talk about a mystery, had no idea. You know, we've replaced a lot of that mystery over the years with sound scientific knowledge, but you know, even some of that sound scientific knowledge is really truly some amazing feats that these migratory birds pull off. So we're going to take a look at some of nature's best magic today. Yes, John, I'm excited because in this episode, we're going to bring to light some of those magical feats to include some of the birds that come and visit our backyards. Plus, we also have a fun kids activity of taking a virtual trip somewhere. And as always, we're going to give you some tips and tricks on what you can do to help all these migratory birds as they pass through your yard in both the fall and the spring. So stick around for the magic. Okay, Brian, here we go. Man, I don't know if you got outside last night, but we are here it is in central Indiana. It is the middle of September and we are in the peak of our songbird migration. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to check. uh, Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology has a website called BirdCast and you can just do a Google and look for that, folks. Uh, but they have a forecast on how the migration's going and how many birds are going to... And they had the red flag for last night because the winds came out of the north and came right south on through yeah. Indiana. And they were estimating four to five hundred million birds were in the skies last night moving south. How cool is that? That's just phenomenal. I've been watching some of the migration maps Uh, BirdCast points you to some things where you can watch live radar maps and watching recently uh, the central flyway through Central North America where birds kind of typically migrate uh, north and south uh, between spring and fall. You can watch those maps and they were just lit up over the weekend and just amazing to see the colors showing like you're talking about, John, these millions of birds all in the air at the same time on their migration absolutely fascinating yeah we won't go into great detail today but those maps are based on actually weather radar they've learned many years ago that you can actually see when the birds take off in the evening and start getting into the skies they create echoes on weather radar that literally show you and and the scientists have learned how to calculate numbers based on the radar reflections and stuff so it's really cool so yeah again that cornell uh birdcast site is a great one to go to to learn more about this migration so they're talking about, what, 10,000 species of birds in the world and roughly, you know, uh, not all birds migrate, uh, roughly about 20% migrate, give or take, you know, 1,900 to 2,000 species. Here in North America, we've got about um, 1,000 species of birds in North America, and the estimates are that about 30% of those 1,000 birds, or around 300 species, give or take, are the ones that are heading north and south, east and west, whatever their migration. And yeah, folks, it's not just a north-south movement. There's all kinds of different movements going on with these migrations. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those different movements, but not all birds migrate. Um, some birds stay where they are year-round. Some do short movements. 
but then also some do these really long movements, which is getting captured for, for sure on these weather radars. Uh, but these things happen in spring with the spring migration. We have our fall migration. And um, migration is all about the birds that are on the move. And it's really cool because, you know, <laughs> you're out in your yard, maybe you're feeding the birds. And it's like each day during migration, it's like a gift. What bird's going to show up today? You know, what bird's going to be in the yard? Or who's at the feeder or that, that bird bath? Or, or who's just flying over the house? Um, you know, we all know geese, those Canada geese, or cranes, or ducks. Traditionally, those are the birds that we've noticed flying over and migrating in the different seasons. But then we have all sorts of those smaller birds from blackbirds that everyone tends to see in big flocks, but we have sparrows and finches. Robins, to some extent, will do some moves movement. But don't forget, warblers and those backyard jewels, the hummingbirds, love seeing those. Yeah, thank goodness I still have my hummingbirds. They haven't left yet, but <laughs> I guarantee you sometime, probably in the next two to three weeks, they're going to be heading to South uh, South to Central America and uh, taking off. And you know what? The, you know, the thing that we also don't realize is that, you know, this is a really dangerous thing for birds. I mean, it is it crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to get yourself in trouble when you're migrating uh, and going that much distance. I mean, literally exhaustion. Think of those hummingbirds flying over the Gulf of Mexico, 600 mm-hmm. and some odd miles. Exhaustion, uh, drowning, uh, running into buildings, uh, you know, weather, bad weather. We've got our hurricane in the Gulf Coast that's forming right now. And any bird heading south right now, if it's, now they say that many birds are aware because of the air pressure they can sense and things, mm-hmm. but any bird caught within that weather system is going to be in potential trouble. You know, one of the things they talk about is that North America, again, we have all those birds that are leaving, and estimates that about 4 billion birds leave North America, cross our southern border, and head to Mexico, South America, Central America. So that 4 billion birds that left are leaving now. When it comes next spring, about 25% of them will not make it back. So you're losing about a billion birds as part of this whole migration just in the fall migration, you've got the, the spring migration uh, mortality, too. You probably lose another pretty good percentage there, too. So it's a very, very uh, tough thing for birds and a very dangerous thing for birds. So why would you risk it? You know, John? If you're a bird, why not just... Why, I'm in South America. I'm in Central America. Why not <laughs> yes. stay there? Yeah, we talked about that back in Episode 5, part of Nesting Part 1. Why take the risk? talking about different land masses and territories for these birds and the amount of food that, that they're trying to gather, not just for themselves, maybe in their wintering territories, where what we would call winter, <laughs> but in for their breeding territories and how much more food they need to be able to feed their young and raise a family. So yeah, yeah North- you check that out. Yeah, North America is just a, basically a better place for breeding than South and Central America are, so they come here and take care of it. So let's talk some magic. Yeah. There's another hummingbird called the Rufus Hummingbird, uh, and it travels nearly 4,000 miles uh, during its migration to its breeding grounds. It will breed as far north as Alaska and Northwest Canada, and it winters in Mexico. So literally traveling back and forth, it can tag up to nearly 4,000 miles. And this is fairly recent, and it goes back to, I think, the first discovery of that extreme length was, I think, just back in 2010. 
Uh, That's uh, not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bird banding. It was somebody, you know, there's, there's a lot of hummingbird banders who catch these birds very safely and, and put a little metal. And it's, a, it's actually almost like a tinfoil band they put on their leg. And if it's recaptured, you can tell how long it took and how far it went. And back in 2010, there was one bandit in Tallahassee, Florida, on the 13th of January, and it was recaptured on the 28th of June uh, up in Alaska. So pretty amazing, 3,500 miles away. And, and think about that, too. <laughs> that's, that's a straight distance. If we measure it, it didn't go in a straight line. You could probably double the miles that that bird uh, it easily doubled the miles that that bird put on during that migration to, to go from Tallahassee up to Alaska. And that's, yeah, John, you said that bird that was banded was found in Florida. So, you know, you're talking, they're going Alaska to Mexico and Central America. Well, what's a bird, what's a, a rufus doing in Florida? Well, that's the other cool thing about rufus hummingbirds. Another thing that we've really kind of discovered, and again, it's because I think so many people are watching birds and there's so many people banding birds at this point is that one of the weird things about rufus is historically, again, that is their migration route, but we're finding especially some of the juveniles, the first year birds, kind of have wanderlust. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they kind of hit over and they, they don't pay attention to the maps or the, the, the imprinting. They just kind of wander around and a lot of them end up on our east coast and spend many, many you know months of the winter. Uh, we'll see, like here in Indiana, uh, we probably have four or five rufous hummingbirds overwintering into January, uh, many years here in Indiana, and we banded those birds, and they actually have gone from here to, to like the Carolina coast, and then eventually down to Florida, so and then head back up to uh, Alaska or, or uh, Canada. Travel while you're young, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so pretty cool stuff. Just talking about the hummingbirds, the ruby-throated hummingbird, which is pretty much found in uh, eastern North America. Yeah, as they're traveling in their migration, you know, they're coming up in eastern North America. But then as they travel back in the fall, they're coming back down, going south, and they hit the Gulf of Mexico. And to get down to Mexico and Central America, a few of them sneak around Texas and stay on land. But the bulk of them are doing that hop over the Gulf. And I mean, what a dangerous thing to do when you're doing like some five, 600 plus miles. Because the crazy part is it's one shot. There's nowhere to land. The only thing you're going to be able to land on, if you find anything, is a boat. And so they have to do this one shot hop across the Gulf. And uh, what happens a lot of times with these birds as they prepare for migration is, if I'm going to do something that far, I need the energy to make it. And I need a good tailwind, too. Not going to do it. Well, there's a headwind. Um, <laughs> no hurricane. <laughs> Hurricane's coming in. Mm, I'm going to stay put. <clears throat> but the uh, they're going to actually fatten up there and put on twice their body weight in fat. So if you think about a tiny little hummingbird, a tenth of an ounce bird, you know, weighs about the, the weight of a penny. They will put on enough fat to weigh two pennies before they fly. And then when they hit land, then... They have used up all those fat reserves plus some, and so they're exhausted and hungry. Perils of migration, it's all worth it to be able to raise a family. Uh, some of the interesting parts too, you get these hummingbirds coming through in fall migration, they kind of meander and mosey back through. In the spring, they're shooting, they're shooting north, they're on a race, all the males are trying to get up and get the best territories, but in the fall, they're like, I just gotta go back to my wintering grounds and 
chill out. So they kind of mosey on their way back. So we have a much longer migration pattern that we get to see these birds coming through. One of the cool things with the hummingbirds at your feeders, any given day, count how many hummingbirds you see at one time on your feeders. If you see five at one time, multiply that times five. You would have 25 different hummingbirds actually hitting your feeder that day. And bird banding records have proved this out that you can have all sorts of hummingbirds coming through in one day. So it's always really important. Keep that nectar fresh. Don't take it down. A lot of times people wonder, how, how long do I leave my hummingbird feeder up? Well, at a minimum, two weeks from the last time you've seen a hummingbird. Generally, I'll try to go four to eight weeks before I, I don't see any more activity. Uh, but a lot of the areas in North America now, um, out western coastal areas, and even our eastern coastal areas, like the Rufus hummingbird. And then we now have some ruby-throated hummingbirds that are hanging out in wintertime on our coastal areas. So a lot of folks are leaving their hummingbirds up year-round in those areas. So pay attention because even these little hummingbirds with the brain the size of a BB, remember the exact <laughs> spot of a really good food source, whether that's a flower in your yard or your feeder in your yard. And they come back to the same spots every year. So yeah, you know, why not try to attract those same birds? Because you're probably going to have them. Because a lot of these could live generally about three years, uh, three years old. But some will live a little bit longer than that if they're successful in these migrations. Yeah, the all-time record on a hummingbird, I think, is somewhere around 12 years old. Uh, I forget which species, but I think yeah. it out west. It was one of the western species, but a 12-year-old yeah. 12 hummingbird, 12 they're so tiny and so much peril that they could be in. It's Hummingbirds are fascinating. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I mean, I'm actually just sitting here watching them at my feeders right now. The activity at my feeders is peaking because you've got the migrants and you've got this year's young and got everything else going on. And, and they're getting fat. And I know that sounds weird. But, they <laughs> but you get a can see pot, it. They get a little pot belly on them. It's really funny because, yeah. you know, they're almost doubling their weight. So uh, it has to go somewhere and you can actually see it. You know, another, and that's the whole thing with migration is that the fuel, that's an amazing, again, science has shown us. The ability, that fat, that concentrated fat that they, they store, not just hummingbirds, but all of the birds that migrate, is so high energy. It's amazing, and it fuels the uh, migration like you wouldn't believe. And a good example is our black pole warbler. Uh, a black pole warbler looks kind of like a chickadee with uh, kind of the face pattern of a chickadee, but it has got more stripes on the body, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and it nests over in Canada and, and, and Alaska, over in Alaska. Uh, and they don't just, we, we talked earlier that not all migrations are just north-south. Sometimes there's other east-west movements. They're a good example. They move from Alaska and, and western Canada and come across to eastern coastal areas like Nova Scotia and New England, and they fatten up. Uh, they, they literally put on twice their body weight. Uh, Sounds so familiar. They're, they're going from 11 <laughs> grams to almost 22 grams, so doubling, uh, doubling their weight. They're still under an ounce. They're still only about two-thirds of an ounce at that weight. Uh, but the bottom line is that extra 10 or 11 grams of fuel uh, in the form of fat uh, fuels 90 hours of flight. This bird takes what? off from New England or Nova Scotia <laughs> and doesn't stop flying for three days, 90 hours, and burns that fat to make that unbelievable flight over water the entire time. It's burning at that fat at a rate of about a half of 1% of its body weight per hour. So if you figure that out, and if you compare it to like a 170-pound person who doubles their weight in less than two weeks 
and then loses it all at the rate of two pounds per hour over the three and a half days of that flight. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. And the, and the, and the, and the flight itself, that three-day, three-and-a-half-day flight covering 2,000 miles, that's the same thing as a person running continuously a four-minute mile for 80 to 90 hours. That's just insane. <laughs> These, these are the things that science and, and uh, scientific methods and inquiries have, have really shown the light that there actually is a little magic in this whole migration thing, isn't there? There oh, really is. There's so much there. Yeah. I've never crunched those numbers, and to think about that is even makes it more magical that, that we used to wonder, well, where did the black poles go? Because in the spring, they come up through land for their, their northerly migration. But in the fall, why do they go around? So more more mysteries to unravel, more magic to reveal. But we've already started revealing, okay, now we know their general patterns. Yeah, this stuff is absolutely amazing. That east to west movements, mm-hmm. you know, some of our backyard visitors do some of those kinds of east to west kind of movements, uh, like goldfinches. Goldfinches are, are kind of different in what they do. Some actually will do a kind of a regional or migration or regional shift where they stay in North America, and the more northerly populations might shift southerly, go down to lower province areas or go down into lower 48 states. Um, you know, they get to stay away from some of the colder part of winter, but not all of them. And a lot of those will even be a little bit more nomadic as they move around. You know, some studies have shown that goldfinches, like the American goldfinches at feeders, might actually move around in an area up to four miles in a day, feeding on different kinds of natural foods or at people's backyard feeders, and maybe end up 30 or 50 miles from the beginning of winter to the end of winter and end up somewhere else, or the lesser goldfinches. Not necessarily a lot of migration, but what they do more is a, a vertical or elevation migration. So they will come down out of higher elevation areas during wintertime, where it's harder to find their seed foods, different kinds of seeds, and they come down to the lower elevations. And so very interesting that migration is not, as we've been learning, a direct north-south thing. Some are nomadic, some are east-to-west some just bounce around and look for the best food sources. Yeah, we'd be remiss too, Brian. If we, <laughs> my fav, all-time favorite discovery, and this was, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, is the fact that the all-time record migration, and this is just, you talk about magic, you talk about unbelievable. There's yeah. a shorebird, a large shorebird called a bar-tailed godwit, and it breeds in Alaska, and it winters in New Zealand. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and it flies from Alaska to New Zealand nonstop. Takes it eight days. We're talking 7,200 plus miles. Mm-hmm. And it does it in eight days nonstop. It is able to put on enough fat to fuel this flight for eight days nonstop. All right. Yeah. They, and this, this, is, this is only because of the magic of, again, research and, and the creation of very small satellite tracking devices that they can attach in a harness to the, to the uh, Godwit, and it doesn't impede its flying whatsoever. 
And uh, man, when they first got those satellite results back on these birds, it was just an eye opener. Speaking of eye openers, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you do for sleep? You're flying for eight days straight. Eight days. I mean, can you really do that? So, and they've yeah. actually figured that out. Yeah, they've actually figured out that they take little 10-second power naps, you know, little quick little power naps, or that one <laughs> side of their brain kind of shuts, you know, like your left eye and your left side of your brain or right side of your brain shuts off uh, for a short period of time, and the other side of the brain's doing the doing the work, if you will, and, and so they've actually figured out that physiologically these birds are adapted to fly eight days straight without stopping. The magic of the science being able to figure out the magic of what the birds are doing. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's just mind-blowing. But no bird migration scenario is ever complete without talking about one of the record-breaking feats, one of the longest migrations, and that would be of the Arctic tern. This is a, it's a ocean-going bird. And it's about the size between a robin and a crow. And it's known for one of the longest migrations in not just the bird world, but the animal kingdom. So this kind of medium-sized ocean-going bird actually lives between the poles, between the Arctic and the Antarctic. And so if you think about the birds, these birds will nest in Greenland. And it's summer. And when it comes time, winter's starting to roll in, these birds start taking off and they start traveling down through the... Atlantic Ocean areas going south and end up down in the southerly oceans. And they don't do a straight shot because a straight shot would be somewhere around 20, 25,000 miles. They actually kind of do loops around the oceans as they go and end up in the southerly oceans and move kind of towards the east and back towards the west and, and do what would be called another summering, which we would be considering our winter. They're summering again in the Antarctic. And then they mosey on back up. So we're talking birds that are doing upwards to 60,000 miles of migration each year. 60,000 miles. I mean, it's how many times to the moon and back? Unbelievable. Phenomenal. And you think, do they see winter? (laughs) Do they really see winter? I know they see the icebergs and some snow, but... (laughs) Speculation is... They are in more sunlight. They see more sunlight than any other creature on the planet because they are in the southern hemisphere during summer and at the South Pole when it's pretty much daylight all day long. Mm -hmm. And then they move to the north and the northern hemisphere, an Arctic area, where it's pretty much light all summer long. So they literally are exposed to more sunlight than any other creature on Earth. So I think that's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, talk about your true snowbird. (laughs) (laughs) or maybe we just call him the summer bird because that's all they ever seem to see John we've got a lot of really cool information today we've been talking about Um, it got me thinking about a kids activity why not be like a bird and take a virtual road trip with a hummingbird we we talked today about the ruby throated and the rufus hummingbird how cool it would be bring the kids along Get on the internet together and look up where do these birds live in winter. So you could go to our website at wb.com and browse to your backyard birds section. And you can look up one of those hummingbirds. And then if you navigate to the bottom of the page, you'll see some range maps on where they live in winter. And if you pick one of those places, why not go ahead and pick a destination and then let's sharpen those math skills like we I like to talk about on our show all the time. Figure out how long it's going to take you to get from your place to where that hummingbird is wintering. But do that with traveling the average speed of a migrating hummingbird. 
the dragster of the bird world, the hummingbirds can, you know, zero to 60 in an instant, but they migrate about 30 miles an hour. So take your distance, say at 30 miles an hour, how long would it take us to get there? And hey, while you're there, why not look up some of the plants they like to feed from? Yeah, that's a really good point, Brian, because again, we've talked about it on almost every one of our podcasts, and we, we focused our last podcast, our number nine, almost exclusively on habitat. And without question, if you think about the best thing you can do to help migrating birds as they come through your yard, it, you know, the supplemental feeding is really cool. I think we mentioned last time that I had had a black-throated blue come through my backyard and hit my suet feeder, just a quick hit for mm-hmm. a little energy yep, as yep. it continued on south. Uh, so supplemental feeding is important, but that habitat, that cover, that water, the native plants for lots of insects that they can feed on, and, and berries if they're a fruit eater, you know, like, like the cedar waxwing or whatever it might be. Uh, definitely making sure that that habitat, and again, uh, WBU is really pl- proud to be the champion for the uh, National Wildlife Certified Wildlife Habitat Program, and, and we would encourage you to uh, visit our website at wbu.com, uh, certify your yard, and uh, take a look at that. It'll give you a lot of help on what plants and what things to do in your backyard that'll help migration and the, the birds that are migrating. So, so Brian, I think we've covered this uh, about as much time as we can at this point. Too many uh, birds, too. <laughs> We've left so much on the table, John. I, I know. Migration I know that, is magical, isn't it? <laughs> there are so many other fun facts that we didn't even come close to getting to, but I think the ones we did really, truly explain why we named this Migration Magic. Indeed. So, hope everybody had as much fun as we did. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate that you're listening to us and following along. So, if you wouldn't mind, go to your Apple Podcast or whatever podcast platform you listen on and rate and review us. We'd love for you to be able to share the love because we always want to help bring people and nature together and be able to share being nature-centered. And again, as we always say, uh, on behalf of all of us at Wild Birds Unlimited, we really do thank you for joining us for our Nature Center podcast about migration and magic. And please join us next time when we plan to play Stump the Naturalist with a special guest. (laughs) Uh, And we'll be talking about seasonal uh, uh, frequently asked questions. But as always, we will let nature be our guide, so please take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered.